Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I am reminding remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I want to talk to you today about the text that was just read and, and kind of um, the, the second epistle that Paul wrote to, to Timothy, of which is that this is the, the sort of introduction, um, the greeting in the first paragraph. Timothy was, from all accounts, a faithful servant of God. Paul, the apostle, who wrote you know, two-thirds of the New Testament, was very impressed with the sincerity of Timothy's faith in Christ and his, his commitment to the gospel. In fact, Timothy becomes an evangelist stationed in, the, in Ephesus and works with that church there. And in Acts 16, we have a, a short uh, bio, I guess you could say, a mini bio of Timothy. Um, and hold on one second. Uh, this is uh, 2 Timothy 1.5 where Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Uh, how would you have, like to have the Apostle Paul uh, commend your faith as a sincere faith in Jesus. That's a that's pretty high commendation. In Acts 16, on the second missionary uh, tour, Paul came to uh, Derby and to a place called Lystra. This would be in modern-day Turkey. And we read, a disciple was there named Timothy, who was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. So it's a Jewish believer in Christ, a Jewish Christian. But his father was a Greek, apparently a non-Christian uh, Greek, you know, probably Hellenistic culture, uh, just never had converted. And uh, Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and a nearby a city called Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So There's a lot there, but basically Paul is, is taking Timothy with him on the rest of this preaching tour, and because of possible negative uh, reactions of the Jewish synagogues where he would start his preaching when he came to each new city, uh, Paul goes to pretty drastic lengths to, to get Timothy ready for that. And Timothy's willing uh, to undergo that. Um, so this is what we know of Timothy. Uh, he gives his life to the preaching of the gospel. He accompanies Paul, and Paul commends him when he writes this second letter to Timothy from uh, prison, and he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. And so what we want to talk about today is how did Timothy become Timothy? Becoming Timothy. Um, that's our topic today. This is Mother's Day. <clears throat> uh, and being that today is Mother's Day, it would be pretty logical to talk about the influence of Timothy's mother on his development, on his becoming. And we're going to get to that, uh, to be sure. But the fact is, our children, all children, are the cumulative product of many other people in their lives, in addition to their parents. And indeed, in 2 Timothy, in the text we're going to be reading from today, uh, 
Timothy is referred to as the child, if you will, of several different people. And so we may have, uh, we, we could have given this sermon an alternate title, something like, uh, Whose Child Was Timothy? Uh, because the text of 2 Timothy actually indicates multiple answers to that question. And so what we want to do this morning is to um, examine each of these to see how Timothy became Timothy. How do we become a person of sincere faith? How do we grow into that? How, is that or is it not what we are becoming, what we are developing toward? So let's talk for a few minutes this morning about the process, if you will, of becoming a Timothy. Now, at the letter's very beginning, in its greeting, we see that Timothy was, uh, spiritually speaking, at least to some extent, the child of Paul. He was the child of Paul. So that's one of the answers to the question, whose child was Timothy? Well, he was the child of the Apostle Paul. Now, not literally, not biologically, um, or something like that. He wasn't in his his own household, you know, uh, he wasn't his, his, uh, the father or the head of the household in which Timothy grew up. And yet in 2 Timothy 1.5, we read this in the greeting. Paul is writing this to Timothy, my beloved child. And over in chapter 3, he does a similar thing. He says, you, however, speaking to Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. In other words, Timothy has become this per person who is basically following. He's chosen to follow all of these things about Paul, Paul's conduct, his aim in life, his faith, his patience, his love. His, Paul's whole purpose, his whole trajectory has become Timothy's because of some uh, influence that Paul has had over him. And this really underscores uh, the power of our peers to influence us. Somebody once said, no man is an island. We're all involved in many different relationships and uh, sort of uh, connections with other people. Some of these people we know uh, relatively well. Some of them we know intimately. Some of these people we know not at all. We read their, their insights on uh, or their opinions on a blog post or on the evening news. But we are, we are the product of all these different uh, peer influences, if you will, over the course of our life. And th these can be quite <clears throat> unhelpful. They can be very destructive. I'm reminded of what the Proverbs tell us right out of the gate in Proverbs chapter 1. Um, Proverbs says in verse 10 of chapter 1, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, and notice the, 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 the uh, appeal here of the peers, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. So come be a part of our crime. It's going to be fun. We're going to have camaraderie. We're going to get a lot of money. Verse 14, Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. That's often the underlying appeal of whatever untoward action our peers invite us to do. We're going to be one. We're going to have solidarity. You're going to have a sense of belonging. Be in our gang, be in our group. And then he says this in verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. Or I think of Rehoboam, if you remember that story, the young newly coronated king after uh, the, the kingdom or right at the, the cusp of the division of Israel into the north and the south. And, and Rehoboam rejected the counsel of the older men about the path he should take uh, with regard to imposing taxes and burdens on the people. And he opted instead for the uh, opinions of uh, his fellows, uh, people who were equally young, equally inexperienced, and things didn't go too well. So peers can have this destructive, unhelpful uh, influence on, on us, but they can also be wonderful. 
Think of the case of Paul and his influence over Timothy. What if Timothy had never met Paul? What if Paul had not come through his hometown of Lystra um, on that first missionary tour? And no doubt Timothy uh, heard about this. Paul was stoned, if you remember, and drug out of the city for dead. Timothy had to have heard that. It's possible that as a young uh, man or teenager or something like that, that he saw these things. What if he'd never come in contact with Paul? How might the whole trajectory of Timothy's life have been different? And I know you're like uh, me and Cherie, we've often prayed as our kids were being reared, uh, I, I would say daily, sometimes multiple times a day, that God would put good influences in their lives um, as they were being reared. They were being developed in, in large part you know, by the influences. It wasn't just what we said to them, it was what other people said to them or did to them or drew them into. And so we prayed uh, especially that God would put in their life a Christ Christ-loving spouse, knowing that your spouse is going to influence you more than anybody um, else ever will, uh, save maybe your parents. And I still pray for my grown children that God will put solid, you know, wholesome, helpful people uh, around them. So Timothy was the child of, uh, of a peer, a very important peer, um, a fellow human being is what I'm saying, a man by the, uh, by the name of Paul, Paul the Apostle. But not only was he the child of his peers, he was also, more fundamentally, the child of his mother, the child of his mother. So a second answer to this question, how does Timothy become the Timothy we know of, that Paul so uh, commends as a, a, a man of sincere faith, has a lot to do with Timothy's mother. Now, obviously, Timothy was the child of a father, too, um, but we don't know much about his father. The New Testament tells us little about Timothy's father except that he was, quote, a Greek. Uh, and we're left to wonder, you know, what that might mean. We know that he did not receive Jewish circumcision because he gets that as a, a young adult um, for purposes of, uh, you know, uh, making the gospel more palatable to these Jews who would see circumcision as a sign of whether or not you're a person of the Lord, a person who follows Yahweh and adheres to his covenant and that sort of thing. Um, but at any rate, um, the text of 1 Timothy is much more interested in the influence of the women in Timothy's upbringing. It says nothing about his father, but does mention the influence of his mother and even his grandmother. So in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, the passage that Corey read a minute ago at the outset, we read this, I am reminded, Paul writes, I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So he, he goes to the effort of, of noting that this sincere faith in Jesus that Timothy has was something that in some way uh, he had been given by, or at least it had been exemplified by his mother and even his grandmother, these women involved in his upbringing. And the text expounds, uh, expounds further on uh, their uh, influence on Timothy over in the third chapter. So let's go to chapter three and look at verses 14 and 15. He says, to this, he says this to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe knowing, that, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. Somebody put these sacred writings in his life. And in fact, they're, they're 
two things, two specific things, especially involved in their parenting uh, of Timothy or the parenting of the mother and the influence of the grandmother even, uh, apparently, that made Timothy Timothy. So if we, we ask, how do you become a person like Timothy? Well, how do you raise a, a child to become a person of sincere faith in God like Timothy? Let me suggest two specific things that are mentioned here in the text, uh, just in passing, but they, they are uh, extremely uh, important. First of all, it's the centrality of the scriptures, the centrality of the scriptures. Look what he says. From childhood, verse 14, or verse 15, rather, he says, Timothy, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. This would be uh, the Old Testament scriptures, the scriptures of their day. Okay, so the Bible, we would say today, if we're going to extrapolate to our modern situation. Somehow, this child, as he was being reared, was routinely and thoroughly exposed to, the, to Holy Writ, to the writings known as Scripture. That's how they refer to in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, who put those scriptures in the life of Timothy? Uh, clearly his mother. And I think that's something we have to keep in mind as we try to impart, uh, impart God's way to our own children. We're not essentially, at the end of the day, imparting our own think-sos. That, that's not what parenting is. Uh, we're not imparting some other person, however smart they may be, however sincere they may be. Ultimately, it's not about their think-sos. What uh, Timothy's mother was doing was bringing to bear on her child's development the eternal truths breathed out by the very Spirit of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. The word breathe is a form of the word for spirit. And when you're reading the Bible, you need to realize that what you're reading is the very breath of God. The Spirit of God um, animates the pages of scripture. It's not a dead letter. It's not an inert object, a book, really. This is the mind of God, the spirit of God speaking on its pages. And a wise parent relates that to the child and the child's experiences and challenges and dreams and hopes and identity daily. Um, the second thing, in addition to the centrality of scriptures, is the character of the adults teaching Timothy. Notice what it says here, knowing from whom you learned it. He doesn't just say you had this body of knowledge uh, that you regarded as true. No, the knowledge is connected to a life. The knowledge is embodied. The knowledge is enfleshed in the person of, of the one who is presenting it to you. Continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it. That's one of the things that makes it credible, is the character of the person who's presenting the word of God to you teaching you the word of God as you rise up and lie down and walk in the way to use the language of Deuteronomy 6. So we're not talking here just about truth as information, truth as propositions, truth as doctrine, you know, some standalone abstractions, but we're talking about truth enacted, truth lived out daily uh, as, as Timothy watches his mother interact and think and react and dream and deal with fear and anxiety and whatever else. There was never a doubt in my mind growing up that my mother tried to live the word. And I know many of you in our church could say the same thing. Was my mom perfect? No, she's sitting right here right now, so I may get in trouble. But she, she always tried to live the word. It wasn't just some dry, um, you know, intellectual um, 
set of abstractions. It was something that was a way of life. So character and centrality of scripture. All right. Well, this is, this is so crucial, all of this, because every child, every human being, was designed and formed by God to be a child of his. And that's the third answer to our question. How did Timothy become Timothy? Um, whose child was Timothy? He was the child of the Apostle Paul, in a sense. He was the child of his mother, most obviously. But he was also, in a sense, the child of God. Now, of course, when we talk about human beings being children of God, this is biologically true. This is existentially true. We, we exist because God created us. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us about this. Um, you know, parents, we could say, well, where do people come from? Well, they come from two parents. But parents really aren't, um, you know, we, we are giving children our DNA. When that little zygote forms in the mother's womb and it has the DNA of the mom and dad, that's not nothing, but you know, the DNA was the molecules composing, you know, those nucleotides that make up DNA, those are made by God in the first place. Um, and so literally, we, we come from God. We are his offspring in terms of just our existence. But there's something at least as important, if not more important than that, and answer the question, why did God make us? He wants us to be his children relationally, spiritually. And we can choose otherwise, but he hopes we won't. Christians recognize that God is the Father. He is our Heavenly Father, as we've talked about in previous weeks. And that's part of Paul's greeting here to Timothy. Verse 2 of chapter 1. To Timothy, my beloved child, he says in the salutation, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. He knows that Timothy knows that they share a mutual father, which makes them brothers. And that father is God himself. And so they are children of God. In 1 Peter 1, it says about every Christian that, um, according to his great mercy, blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, notice the language here, he, that is God, has caused us to be born again. This is birth language. This is the language of childbearing. God has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he says down in verse 23 of 1 Peter 1, you, Christians, have been born again, not of perishable seed, we're not talking biology, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, all right? So Timothy's mother, as important as she was, crucial though she was, every parent uh, it is just a conduit for God, a conduit for God, if you will. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, while he says that all scripture is breathed out by God, um, and, and these scriptures were put in the life of young Timothy. He knew from a child these sacred writings. Really what it was about, though, was his mother and his grandmother pointing him through the scriptures to God so that the man of God, they wanted Timothy to grow up to be a man of God, not just a man, not just a, a Hellenistic you know, man of Greek culture or a Roman citizen or whatever else, uh, you know, a successful businessman, a good thinker, a, a well-connected, uh, you know, socialite, whatever else uh, somebody might be, they wanted him to be a man of God. And so that's what they were doing. They were giving him scripture, but the scripture came from God and pointed Timothy on to God. In 2 Timothy 1.5, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So notice how the progression works in these two texts, in 2 Timothy 3 that we just read and 2 Timothy 1.5. So Timothy has this sincere faith, 
but it had come to him through Eunice, his mother. Where did her faith come from? Well, that had come to her, apparently, from Lois, her mother, Timothy's grandmother. Where did Lois get her faith? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But it had come to her through somebody's influence, maybe several somebody's. But if you take it all the way back, where does it start? Where does it emanate from? What's the fountainhead of all of this? Well, that, of course, is God. It starts with God. It starts with Christ, whom Hebrews 12.1 says, in at least the New American Standard Version, is the author of our faith. So ultimately, it's about God. He's our Father. We're the children of God. Jesus Christ is the author of our faith. You know, I, I remember watching a few years ago, we, we watched American Idol a little bit, and sometimes uh, about everybody would, would, was just covering other people's songs. And they would always talk about, he made it his own, he made it his own. And yeah, some of them were great. Some of them made it their own so much I couldn't tell it was the same song. And it's actually way worse in my opinion. That's, a that's hardly a melody anymore with all the, uh, uh. anyway. Um, and I always would be, and every now and then there'd be somebody on there who actually wrote their own song. And I always kind of thought, he wrote that, or she wrote that, that's a whole nother level. That's, that's actually art. Um, that's not just you're performing something somebody else generated. Covers are great, but there's something to be said for the authorship. And when it comes to, to faith, mothers are important, influences are important, even an apostle was important, but no one is as important as the God who gives us the whole gospel in the first place. He wrote, he wrote the gospel. Um, and so as we try to perform it well, you might say, be faithful to it, we've got to remember always that we are most, most uh, ultimately a child of God. And, and children don't belong to parents. I think sometimes we think they do. Um, they belong to God. Uh, really, we are just custodians. We are just stewards of somebody else's child because every human being is made in the image of God. And there are several te texts that suggest that. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Think of your child as an heirloom from God. Uh, the fruit of the womb, a reward. He, we preside over their development. He entrusts them to us, but ultimately they go back to him. And, and, and from the perspective of eternity, it'll look like we had uh, you know, guardianship for a blip, a, a mere speck on a timeline. Proverbs 1, verses 7 and 8. You know, Proverbs is about inculcating in people especially young people in some of the verses, a son it uses um, to talk about this, uh, inculcating divine wisdom, godliness, versus the nemesis in Proverbs of godly wisdom is folly or foolishness. So folly and foolishness in Proverbs pretty much mean sin and waywardness and disobedience. They don't just mean, no, that's a, that's a, a funny bad idea. No, it's a horribly destructive bad idea. But notice how Proverbs 1 begins. So verse 7, kind of the theme of the whole collection of wisdom sayings, is this, the fear of the Lord, the reverence or respect for the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. That's where it starts. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Look at the very next thing he says. That's kind of what the whole book is about. Are you going to be a fool or are you going to be a wise person? Are you going to take in godly wisdom or follow your own think so's, uh, you know, off the path into who knows what? The very next thing he says in Proverbs 1.8 is, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So God's instruction is to be relayed through 
but mothers and through fathers. And so it's fitting that we acknowledge those mothers in our lives who have been faithful to that calling uh, throughout all of our lives. In, in the final analysis for all of us, the question of our becoming, what are we becoming, where our life is going, and what we should be becoming, ultimately for all of us, that's a question really that we should let God answer, right? There's a lot of answers out there, but we should let God answer the question of what and who we are becoming. Because in the biblical narrative, human beings aren't even, when they first appear on the scene in Genesis 1 and 2, they're not even defined except in the context of God. Like, what is a human? If we said, what does it mean to be a human being? All right? What does it mean to be a man or a woman? What does it mean to be a human uh, in, in the world? Genesis 1 and 2 have an answer to that. But it's not this. You don't really, the narrative does not go this way. It isn't just a story that opens with this free, independent, you know, human being in the universe, a rugged individualist alone in the cosmos. And now let's see whether he, he or she can find God. That, that's not the picture in Genesis 1 and 2. Instead, when humans appear, God's already there. And, and their whole definition, their whole identity is a function of the presence and relationship with God. So the minute we don't have a relationship with God as human beings, we're not really human. We're sort of subhuman in some sense. Um, and, and I would say in the most important sense, in the spiritual sense. It, what it means to be human is to start with Genesis 1 and 2. And you can't be human in the way we were designed to be human, in the fullest sense of the word, except vis-a-vis -vis, uh, God. God has to be in the picture. And we see that right in Genesis 1, uh, 26 and following. Then God said... This is the culmination of the creation in Genesis 1. Let us make man, that word is humanity, in our, in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And so we need to let God answer for us what it means to be human. What, what should we become? Where should our life trajectory be headed? And, uh, and, and keep that in mind as we are rearing our children. Here's the problem. And we see this early on in the Bible. And that is that sin enters the picture in the garden. And, and sin enters every human um, in every age. So we just replicate this sort of ideal type or this paradigm um, or archetype of the Garden of Eden in every life, in every age. It doesn't matter who you are, what race, what language, when you lived. Uh, uh, the Garden of Eden story kind of is replicated. Starts off good, we sin. And sin enters the picture early in human life, and it enters the picture, picture really often. Um, and we might as well uh, deal with that and be honest with it. Think about the children we raise. When I say sin enters uh, the picture really early and really often, I, I think most of us know this when we raise children. And I'm not commenting now on the question of original sin and, you know, all of that. That's not my point. I'm just saying tendencies toward a self-orientation, which is ultimately what sin is about. It's, it's the opposite of love, right? Love is other-oriented. We you know, orient ourselves toward God and toward helping others. Sin is basically about self-survival and trying to get what you want for you on your own. That starts early, that tendency. I'm not saying God's judging people and condemning three-year-olds to hell or anything like that. Um, I don't think that's the case at all, in fact. But that's not what this lesson or this point is about. 
But isn't it true, those of us who rear ch children, that these negative tendencies enter the, the hearts and minds and lives of our kids pretty quickly? I'm going to tell a little story real quick right now. I'm not going to mention which of my three kids this applies to. I hope I don't give it away with a, a gender pro, gender to pronoun slip up. I'll try to say they and their every time. But we had one child who was a little little baby, bitty baby, like one and a half, two, something like that. Um, just learning to talk, did not like English peas at all. And so we're trying to give them, um, give this child, give it. I don't always it. Give this child English peas. You know, like give them different food. A lot of variety for nutrients and all that and when this child did not like something this child had already learned the word no and would say no if some if this child really didn't like something this child would bang on uh, said child's uh, uh, table and go no and Shri and my mom were looking at me right now they remember this and we always joked in our family that what no meant was expletive no uh, even though the child had never heard uh, those expletives because we didn't use them. So we didn't teach a child that. This is a, like a two-year-old. Where does that come from? Folly, the Bible tells us, is bound up in the heart of a child. It was bound up in my heart. It was bound up in my wife's heart, my mom's heart, Serena's heart, all y'all out there, everybody. Uh, that, that's Maybe we're not culpable as sinners yet. Okay, I'm not saying that. But the tendency to be self-oriented and to take matters into your hand and act like Adam and Eve did in the garden, that starts really early. And I think any of us who've reared children would have to acknowledge that. Um, here's another thing, though. Sin begins early and often in, in, in the parents who are raising those children. So it's not like we've got pristine parents raising children and keeping the folly out of their lives. We got our own folly. And we spoke earlier of the importance of the character of parents doing the rearing. The sacred writings have to be lived out, enacted, modeled, exemplified. The fact is, however, that all who are raising these children, no matter who you are, you yourself are a sinner. We don't exercise the best self-control. We don't always have the best wisdom to offer. We don't always have the right priorities. We don't always do the right thing over the easy thing. Let's be honest. Uh, and that's the people God has entrusted the children to. So our children, and in fact, every human being, because we all begin life as children, every human being who exists in this world is exposed to any number of influences. And so what we ultimately are becoming, let me suggest one final no, shocker, the world's going to tilt on its axis, this is a four-point sermon, um, is that we each are also a child of our own choices, okay? Note um, that Paul urges Timothy, who is his own child, who's Paul's child in the faith, and he's the child of his godly mother Eunice, he's the child of God, he urges Timothy still to take responsibility for his own becoming. 2 Timothy 1, 6. For this reason, I remind you, he says to Timothy, the, the evangelist left at Ephesus to work with the church there. He says, I remind you, I urge you to fan into flame the gift of God. It's not just automatic. God has given him this apparently miraculous uh, you know, measure of the Holy Spirit. I, I think that's what this is talking about, through the laying on of hands. He still has Timothy to fan it into flame. Don't let it go dormant. 
fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And in fact, throughout the whole letter, throughout all of 2 Timothy, Paul is urging Timothy to make sound choices, to take right actions, to uh, strengthen his own spiritual development. I'm going to just rattle off here uh, four or five examples that will take here about 30 seconds. All I want you to notice is what I have in red, because in each of these, we have imperatives from Paul to Timothy. An imperative is a, a verb in, in um, uh, you know, that's a command, basically. Note all the imperatives, which all imply that, that Timothy's responsibility to comply with what God has given him, to make the right choices, to make the right decisions, to do the right thing. So in verse 1, 13 and 14, follow the pattern of sound words that you have from me in the in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. If, if he's commanding you to follow something and to guard something, then isn't it logically implied necessarily i would argue that not doing so is an option if timothy's a robot what you know just push play he's on he can't do otherwise no he's asking him choose to follow choose to guard similarly in chapter 2 verse 15 do your best to present yourself as as one approved to god a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling handling the word of truth use the word correctly be responsible with that. Do your best. Be diligent in that. Again, a command. Timothy can choose to comply or not. Chapter 2, verse 22. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the, uh, the Lord from a pure heart. And in chapter 3, 14, but it's for you, he says, continue in what you learned and have firmly believed. And then finally down in chapter 4, remember he's an evangelist at Ephesus, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's the charge. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, if it's popular or not, if it goes against the grain of culture or not, uh, you know, it's liberal, it's conservative, it's progressive, it's traditional, preach the word, period. And be ready to do that, even though it's going to involve some tough stuff, reproving, rebuking, exhorting. And he says, do it with complete patience and teaching. A piece of cake, right? That's a tall order. But he, he can choose to try his best to do that or to, you know, phone it in and do his own thing. So Timothy is, what's implied in all this is Paul saying, you got to make the right choices. Uh, and, and it is a biblical truth, um, though this truth contains obvious tension, like many profound and fundamental elemental biblical truths, there's profound tension. I would say even mystery even some just inexplicable aspects of this for our finite human minds. But the truth is this, God's rule, God's sovereignty over everything and everyone in creation is complete. All right. His sovereignty over everything is complete. And yet his sovereignty allows for independent agency for freedom of action on the part of his creation, especially his human creation. Let me say it again. God's sovereignty over everything is complete, and yet that sovereignty must be understood or defined in a way that allows for the independent choices and action of, of that creation. And that freedom of action, that volition, means that everyone else, not just you, but everyone else is free to influence you and me however they see fit. You either have free will in the world or you don't. And if you do, that means somebody can choose to do something awful with it and the rest of us pay the price. And every one of us, whether we admit it or not, 
is to some extent the cumulative product of all of our life's influences and experiences. And yet, even with that, the scriptures also assume throughout that you and I have the power and responsibility to choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua 24, 15. Remember Peter's sermon in Acts 2, quoting Joel the prophet, he said in chapter 2, verse 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's assuming they have the ability to call upon the Lord. Can't save themselves, but they can choose to call on the one who can, or they can choose not to do so. So ultimately what this means is that we all are called to open ourselves up to God's transforming power. Only his love, only his power can save us. And he offers up his loving, powerful, saving grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the number one thing that mothers can do for their children. The number one thing is to point them to Christ Jesus and to the sacred writings that alone tell us of him. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let me close with this quote from Brennan Manning who writes a lot about grace. He says this, if we take all the goodness, wisdom, and compassion of the best mothers and fathers who have ever lived, they would only be a faint shadow of the love and mercy in the heart of the redeeming God. Thanks a lot.